on Dasher, on Dancer, on Prancer, on Vixen, on Comet, on Cupid, on Donner, on Blitzen, on Josh and Andy. That's what we call a Christmas interspecific stack. This week, we're joined by Jonathan Pritchard, known under the Urbit mistletoe as Minder Folden. Jonathan is a professional mentalist, magician, entertainer, corporate trainer, explainer of mental models, entrepreneur, artist, both digital and martial, language learner, podcaster, urbit evangelist, and master of network breaches. Let's listen. You are a man of many talents and many hats, and I think in any one of them, we could probably spend more than an episode on the one that jumps out to me uh, as something that I'm just totally unfamiliar with is that you are mental. Very. Can you, what does that mean? The, The profession that I've chosen for myself at a very early age is mentalist, which is a flavor magician that has specialized in mind reading tricks or demonstrations of superhuman cognition, being able to remember things, be able to do math quickly, be able to predict the future, influence people's decisions, all the things that would fall into the the human brain shouldn't be able to do that. That's mentalism. So magicians do tricks with objects and tigers and lovely assistants. Mentalists are doing tricks with information through just really good communication skills and information architecture is really what it boils down to. Sorry, hang on. I, I, I said we weren't we, – we, we normally don't do introductions with people on the show. We sort of like jump into it. But because you're Jonathan Pritchard, I think I have to get through this. First thing is mentalist, which uh, you, you can talk some more about. But uh, you've written books on mental techniques, also cartomancy, martial arts. You started a number of companies spanning like web design, merchandising – you started a podcast called Mind Reader University in which you discuss these sort of different – I'm not going to say tricks because that, that downplays what you do, which is you, you talk about you know ways to sell or deal with grief, this kind of thing. I think, you're, uh, I think your first guest was Scott Adams, right? Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. <laughs> How did you get plugged in? How did you get plugged in with him? Um, I've always found him very interesting because he grew up kind of in the same part of the country as I did. And then he got back on the radar, obviously, for things other than cartooning and everything. But, he, you know, many of his books have been pretty interesting. I don't go in for the self-help literature, uh, and I don't know that he would describe it as such, uh, even though it gets characterized that way. But you know, his, his books on skill stacks and things like that are, are quite interesting. So how, how did you get plugged in um, to get him on the show? It's all in the art of the pitch. Knowing exactly what your guest wants to talk about and then putting it in front of them. Really, it's it's nothing more than a single tweet. That was it. I tweeted at him once and he was like, yeah, DM me. And basically, I said, look, I'm a mentalist. I'm... I'm from this world. I know you're a hypnotist. Let's talk about that stuff in a way that nobody else will be able to to explore. And he goes, yeah, sounds good. And there it is. <laughs> he actually followed through and, and showed up on the show. So that was really cool. Were you doing the um, professor of by that time? Because I know now you come up with like a professor of, I don't know, something like professor of talking past the pitch or something like that. I don't you, you have names for different people who come on. Were, were you doing that with him at the time? I was. That was part of the whole shtick of putting the show together because it, it all comes from my years touring the country as a mentalist, as a professional entertainer and performer. One of the most common things that I would get after shows in the autograph line, people go, oh, did you go to college for mind reading? And... That is such a stupid question, but <laughs> but it makes sense. Like, I, I used to think that was the dumbest thing I've ever heard, but then I really thought about it, and I go, that actually is very logical, because usually if you're going to get really, really, really good at something, you probably went to school for it. 
there aren't that many autodidacts in the world that can just sit down, spend 15 years focusing on one topic and then become world class at it. So I, I, I think that's a, just a perfectly fine question nowadays. But I got it so often that I said, screw it, I'm going to make my own university. And what are you going to call it? MindReader University. Oh, MindReaderUniversity.com is available? Hell yeah. So I, I snatched that up. And then that became the central place where I sold my books and e-courses and audiobooks and t-shirts and anything I could think of to make money off of my experience. I threw it there in the school store. So the theming was all just very easy to, to run with. So then the guests, I wanted to be professors of their area of expertise. So that was already built in from kind of the first first day where I go, all right, let's uh, have Scott Adams on. He's, he's going to be the professor of influence and programming. And then I figured that would attract the computer crowd, but it's self-programming. I, I often, like we talked about it on the episode where mentalists are essentially admin users of the human operating system where most people haven't even explored shortcuts uh, on the user end of things. So they, they don't even know the keyboard shortcuts to to do their work faster in the, the mind operating system. But mentalist, um, mentalism, hypnosis, kind of gives you that behind-the-scenes access to do really wacky stuff that most people have no clue is possible. Are these skills something that you think everybody can learn at least to a certain extent or is it is it does it kind of have to be born in and the reason i ask is uh so jonathan spence a professor at yale wrote a book um so he's a he's a sinologist a chinese historian and he wrote a book the memory palace of matteo ricci mm-hmm. uh, which is about uh the jesuit missionary to china who apparently had this mnemonic system for memorization and he would, you know, visualize things spatially and do it. And like, even just reading about it was sort of mentally exhausting to me uh, because I I couldn't even comprehend how that was more efficient than whatever I do. And certainly my, the results for me are less impressive than, than him. But, you know, for, for a layman, is this something that you can get a little bit of skill in? Or um, like I said, is it just something that, you know, you're born with it? It's a gift. It's not a gift. It is a, it's a talent that any, any skill that you can acquire, you can get better at it with focused practice. On one end, I want to say everybody could do it. I'm old enough to have met enough people to know that may not be true. <laughs> I, I, want, I want to believe that anybody could do these things. But you're right that maybe there's some natural proclivities for wanting to do things like this on the man. This is learning the system is more difficult than just doing the skill on that front. There's there's a particular challenge to that. And the, the best way I know how to approach it is from the world of magic. Think, for example, There's a trick deck of cards that I've sold thousands of over the years because my first job was working at a magic shop in Universal Studios after college. And I sold magic decks of cards that they do one trick, but they do it really well. And you don't need any skill, no sleight of hand, no nothing. The deck itself is the method and the mechanism to make the effect happen. Or you could spend six months learning some sleight of hand and do the same trick with any deck of cards. At the beginning, before you have any familiarity with either of those, they're both going to be difficult because you're unfamiliar with it. You'll get faster results with the trick deck of cards and it will feel easier, but that approach locks you in to... A certain ceiling of skill. You're never going to progress beyond it because you're relying too much on your tool versus learning the hard way, which in the long run ultimately becomes the better way because it 
opens up more options instead of closing you off. So in the in the terms of memory techniques and memory palace, the system seems like it's going to be more difficult and more hassle and screw it, why don't I just remember the one detail in the first place? But in the long run, it winds up serving you better and better and you become less dependent on your phone or your notebook or your tools that way. So there there are some easy wins that you can show people. A memory palace is actually really advanced memory techniques. Like that's a that's a pretty advanced thing to develop. There are all sorts of techniques and approaches, but they really just boil down to two. Linking and peg systems. That's it. Learning how to link two separate pieces of information in a visual way that's compelling and easily memorable. Everybody thinks rote repetition is the way that makes that happen, but really it's your mind gravitates to the ridiculous, the nonsensical, too many numbers, too few numbers, it's too big or too small for its thing. Uh, violence or sexual imagery is naturally interesting to the brain. So if you can make something super gross or obscene or ridiculous, you're going to remember that much easier than, oh, this thing makes so much sense, it'll be logical for me to remember it. Now, that's code for your brain going, ah, I don't need to spend any time remembering this. So that's that's why if you meet uh, a person with a super unique name, it is so unique that your brain goes, I've never encountered this before. I will attend to this. And then you're more likely to remember it versus, oh, Eric. OK, cool. Yeah, I, I know 11 Eric's that I'll remember his name. No, no problem. Well, you spent zero energy on capturing his name and locking it in to something you you can remember. So then next time you meet him, you're like, oh, what is his name? I know I know it's something normal, but what is it? So it, it's really up to what you want out of the skill, your motivation for choosing it, and then that will guide you along the way. But my philosophy is at the beginning, it's all going to be difficult. So not why not choose the hard one that's going to open up more options for you down the road rather than the easy one now that will bake in bad habits that will limit your skill set later. So I, I want to make choices that create options, not destroy options. Yeah, you're you're talking about, um, I, I want to make this clear for people who are listening. Uh, when you're talking about these memory techniques that, that you use, say, to learn a language, um, you're talking about uh, putting violent or sexual imagery into um, something like I think the method of, of loci, which is where you, you sort of maybe go around a, a physical place in your mind and, and if you wanna if you wanna memorize a fact, you sort of attach that fact to a very um, strange or violent or sexual uh, image. There was this book, I don't know if, if you guys know it, but um by uh, Jonathan Jonathan uh, sorry, Joshua Saffron Four, I think. There's there's two Saffron Fours, and one of them is the is the uh, novelist, and the other one is mm-hmm. the the um, uh, news the news guy. Anyway, what he did was uh, he decided that he was going to become the or he had heard about these memory techniques and thought to himself, this doesn't work for you know you're born with this right. If you're a memory champion, you are born with the ability to to memorize. So this is, he's kind of a regular guy, smart guy, but a, a, a normal person who linked up with, uh, I believe it was the guy who started Memrise. I don't know if you guys, if you guys know that website. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and uh, he, uh, linked up with him and learned techniques for like a year and then became the, um, I think he was actually the American memory champion one year. So he went from zero, no knowledge whatsoever in a year, just basically took a year off to write this article in which he discussed learning memory methods and going from uh, nothing to becoming, I think, the uh, like North American memory champion that year. Yeah, um, yeah, it's, it's a lot of fun. 
Yeah, I don't want to. I don't want to suggest, uh, on the other hand, that it's something that anyone can do because, for instance, Andy and I have both learned Chinese, and this is a great opportunity to talk to you about learning Chinese because I think you've done that as well, right? Or are、I'm, doing that? Yeah, I'm in the middle of it. I'm about. I'm. I'm taking my sweet ass time doing that. So I. I learn about one character or two a day, and then I spend about half an hour, forty five minutes practicing my my handwriting and and reading. And listening to stuff, so I, it's the slow and steady approach. I I don't want to move、yeah. too quickly, so I, I just want to maintain a pace I can keep up over the years. I just want to know what your motivation for Chinese is. Kung Fu, as as <laughs> silly as that sounds, I've been doing Wing Chun Kung Fu for almost a decade now, and there's there's so many romanization spellings of. Tansao, Bangsao, all all the language around the postures and and ideas and stuff, and I was like, yeah, you know what? I want to be able to go to China and straight up learn from folks over there and not be handicapped by not being able to communicate with anybody. And then started learning Mandarin, and then a couple months in, realized, oh yeah, but a lot of Wing Chun is Cantonese, but. Eh, yeah, who cares? So I'm still I'm still keeping up with Mandarin because again, that's that's the choice that's going to open up more possibilities for myself than Cantonese, I think. So I I found、yeah. a system that that works based off of how your your mind works and leveraging the memory techniques that I already know, and I, and that was how I could recognize that these dudes had like they they have it down to a science. And they're native English speakers, so all of those together mean, yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be able to stick with their approach better than just reading a dictionary or whatever, listen and repeat. Well, then I'm not going to be able to read and write. I might be able to speak it, but I won't be able to read road signs. So、right. I wanted to be able to, to cover all my bases, and and that's it. So. Yeah, that was that was the drive behind learning it. There's a there's a funny article, and it was going around like 20 years ago when I was first studying Chinese by、uh, Paul Moser, I think. Josh, you might be familiar, but it's、um, uh, why is Chinese so damn hard? And you know, it, it's interesting because I think, like you said about mentalism, it is a skill that pro. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know how to say.、Uh, everybody can get somewhere with it. Some people will, because of age or whatever, perhaps have a very difficult time or a lack of motivation or something. But also, it's certainly, and I imagine it's true for other languages. But the, if you pick up bad habits early on, especially tones and everything, it's very, very hard to correct. But but certainly, what makes it extremely difficult as a language is, like you said, is the literacy、uh, component comes so late. You know, and I was probably had studied the equivalent of five or six years of university level Chinese before I felt comfortable picking up a newspaper. And whereas you know, I hired int- interestingly a Pakistani guy to teach me、uh, Spanish, and his his technique was. Look, I'm going to teach. I teach Spanish the way that I learned English from these nuns in in Lahore,、uh, and it was all graded reader, right? And so, is immediately able to pick things up. Now, I had taken Latin in high school,、um, but was able to pick up, you know, simple stories, and then from that, build up vocabulary. Where, you know, within like a couple of months, I felt okay reading, you know, news websites. And it's also, you know, there's there's no cognates、um, if you're. Uh, if you're diabetic and you run into a hospital almost anywhere in Europe and just say like you know diabetes insulin, you, they'll be able to help you. And you know in China, good luck, right? <laughs>、um, so it's、uh, it's an interesting skill. And I, I I think you know like you said though, a sort of motivation really really has to come along with it. The、uh, you mentioned touring, you know, and so obviously it is your meal ticket. But what keeps you interested in this? Is it just that it's your profession, and how how do you get better at it? Part of I've I've spent a lot of time thinking about that, wondering why the hell do I keep doing this? <laughs> because 
like any job, there are bad days, and spending a lot of time at airports is about the least interesting thing you could possibly do. It, it sounds glamorous until you're in the middle of it, and you're like, boy, all my friends that are still back home see each other all the time, and I might see my friends when we happen to be at the Nashville airport at the same time on a connecting, like on a waiting for a connection. So, th so there are some challenges. But ultimately, it's that any, anything I've ever been interested in, mentalism is a context where I can explore it. My graphic design and painting. Okay, let me build my website. I can design my promo material. I can cut together a video. Oh, I can do this for myself. My friends aren't as good at it, so let me start a branding company to help them create better promotional material. Okay, I did that for about 10 years. Now I can level up to the corporate world. Okay, cool. Oh, negotiation and, and trying to sell stuff? Wow, you try selling a $10,000 show to corporate world without learning the business jargon around it. Oh, okay, so let me let me work on that for a while. So everything I've ever been interested in, I can find some way to use it in that world every everything beyond like outside that world i always have to leave something off i always have to fit into a box where oh we don't we don't talk about kung fu in here and, and <laughs> that kind of thing so it just happens to be the space that's most interesting that's really what it boils down to you, you brought up um, your art, and this is a great opportunity for, for me to ask you about um, NFTs, uh, which for the listener means non-fungible tokens. And I think you got into Ravencoin, right? And and is that that maybe your uh, NFT platform of choice? But what what is that, and what how'd you get into that? It is. I I got into crypto because I just like weird stuff, and then. That started coming up more often. I was like, oh, you know what? I think I could trust this math thing more than human beings. I like that. And that's where Bitcoin and Ethereum kind of hit my radar. And I had created some NFT artwork through Makersplace. I think it's .co or .com, whatever it is. They've, they've done the difficult work of setting up the smart contracts to be able to mint different additions and stuff. So in one angle, I love the idea of helping people think about NFTs as a completely new type of artwork that has never existed in the history of humanity. Ever, ever since cave drawing, for Providence, well, did somebody actually paint this or was it somebody else? Well, we don't know. We'll just have to rely on this certificate that itself could be forged. Okay, so Providence is wacky. Well, how do we know the artist didn't make more than one copy of this thing and sell it to separate people saying that it's the only one? So collectors have to trust the artist, and that's not an ideal situation. So NFTs solve both of those issues in a very elegant way. The work itself is its Providence, is its limited edition nature. And even if the artist created another batch, it's baked into its DNA that it's batch number two. So that's really, really cool to me. It is just super gnarly that we human beings have figured that out. And on top of that, you can create the image that goes along with the NFT and then add on AR layers to the experience that people may or may not even know about. So there's just really cool Easter eggs. Now, Ethereum is awesome. It is phenomenal. There's all sorts of kick-ass games that are getting developed and, and all sorts of cool stuff going on. But man, if you've ever tried writing your own smart contract or, or tried dealing with the Ethereum blockchain in any meaningful way, good luck. Some art nerd like me, no thanks. This is, nope. But then, Ravencoin comes along. It's, it's a fork of Bitcoin. 
like a hard fork. So it's got the Bitcoin layer at its foundation. And kind of like back in the day, there were experiments with colored coins and, and those kinds of things where the metadata that you're actually interested in is tied to this piece of Bitcoin. But then if you sent it to the wrong wallet, the wallet would accept the Bitcoin but lose the metadata, which is why you wanted to trade it in the first place. So that's not elegant. Then Ethereum is a more sophisticated integration of the metadata to the to the chain, but it's clunky as all get out and super difficult to engage with. But Ravencoin was very specifically built to be an NFT chain. And it's you can build your own NFT on the Ravencoin network from your cell phone. You just burn 500 Ravencoin and you get whatever the dynamic is that you want. You can create one NFT from it. You can create one million NFTs. But when you create it, you define how many and of what. And you can choose that, well, we could make more of these later if we wanted to. So you can inflate the market that way. But a situation where you'd want to do that is kind of like if you had a members only club and your NFT was kind of like your challenge coin or anybody that holds this NFT gets into my show for free. This is all the all kinds of stuff that I was like, man, what what could I do with this? So I started by building NFTs for artwork on Ravencoin and created a, a project or a property, however you want to call it, called Nevermore.io which was initially designed around helping artists create their own uh, imagery as NFTs. One drawback is it's difficult to automate the process. That's another point for Ethereum, which is if you could build your smart contract, then you don't have to trust me to send you the NFT if you send me Ravencoin for whatever. So... That's that's got its own challenges, but these are the kinds of of questions that I love digging into. If I want to like do a digital painting on my computer, what's the process from going to dig- from digital painting to uh, like single NFT that is, as we say, non fungible? So what's the what's the process for going between those two things? The process is you export it at uh, high resolution. That's that's kind of what what I like to do is 5,000 pixels by 5,000 pixels, whatever. Big enough to print on a billboard is, is kind of what I like to do. Then once you have that file, when you're creating your Ravencoin NFT, you can tie an IPFS file to it as this is part of your NFT. So it'll be forever tagged to that IPFS address. So it'll always come along for the ride. Um, so it's actually really straightforward. <laughs> so when you're when you're making your your NFT, it's just part of the process. What file do you want to associate with this? Okay, cool. Hit print and boom, it's it's essentially done. There's kind of one big challenge that people have, which is, well, what's keeping me from just saving the the picture? Like, nothing really. But there's a difference between having the image and owning the NFT. And owning the token is provable. And you know you don't own it. And that's that's a big difference to me. That owning the NFT is a lot different than having an image as a background on your phone or or anything like that. I, I was gonna say it's 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 like the difference in, you know, between taking a photo of the Mona Lisa and actually being the Louvre. Exactly. Exactly. And and there's even smarter smarter folks than I've ever met working on having encrypted IPFS files that will only be accessible from the person who owns the token that it's associated with. So now they're they're even working on that layer where sure this IPFS yeah you can you can download it all day long if you want to but good luck getting past the encryption. 
the only way that you're going to be able to decrypt it is owning this NFT in your wallet when it checks for for ownership. So that's really cool stuff that that I'm stoked to see get farther down the road. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting that there have been uh, some cases in Asia, uh, and I don't know how you, you could get NFT to solve this, but wine auctions got really big uh, in, in China for, for some time, probably still are. And there was like some guy in Hong Kong who bought a bunch of, uh, I think it was Rothschild Lafitte, uh, and it turned out that it was like all vinegar. Because <laughs> um, it, it's like, you know, who's going to open up these bottles? You know, who would be that crazy? But, you know, and I think like the the more dramatic was that um, the, the Salvatore Mundi or whatever, uh, uh, Da Vinci that supposedly got discovered and then was sold for, what was it, $400 million uh, to the Saudis or somebody out, you know, in the Middle East. But, um you know, actually, there's a lot of question of, you know, whether or not he even painted it uh, or where it came from and everything. Uh, so these are these are all pretty interesting. But but what I mean, how how accepted is it in the market? I mean, are, are collectors uh, interested in this sort of thing yet? Kind of. Yeah, there there's a surprising amount of energy around this on Maker's Place. I I sell. I sell artwork from 20 bucks to a couple hundred bucks. People will will buy them. And I don't even put a lot of energy into it because I'm I'm working on a ton of stuff. <laughs> so, it's it's a lot of fun and there are some some pieces that move for thousands of dollars and the early adopters are incredible. I mean, somebody yeah, somebody bought I painted an NFT boss. So there, there is a um, Neon District is an RPG game played on on Ethereum, and all the assets are NFTs themselves. So you, the game player, are in possession of genuinely, provably limited guns and equipment, and you own it is so weird and then somebody owns the end boss of the game because the end boss is an nft themselves so all the all the game players will interact with the boss but only one person actually owns the boss so that's really gnarly i i painted uh, it's not great because <laughs> I didn't spend a lot of time on it, but I, I painted the end boss and I was like, yeah, let's see what this does. And then somebody bought it. Somebody bought the painting of the end boss for more than a hundred dollars. So wacky. So I'm not getting rich off this stuff, but it's really neat stuff to be playing with so that I have the familiarity to help other people make a ton of money off off stuff i love it is it um is it mostly uh primary adopters then yet or is there a a, um secondary market i think it's primary as of right now there there's i haven't seen a lot of of interest beyond the novelty of it with one exception there's a woman whose name is uh josie and I believe she's Chicago-based. She makes all sorts of kick-ass uh, Ethereum-based NFT art and interactive AR. Like her thinking about this space is just next level, and and she's got like a legit art following of people who want to collect her stuff. Her work is is oh man, amazing. So if anybody who collected her work wanted to sell a piece, I don't think they would have any trouble selling it. Mm-hmm. But in, in terms I, I guess, of like a big yeah. thing, uh, it's right. it's not there not yet. yet. Not yet. Um, you need to you need to convince you need to convince Chinese collectors that it's a good way for them to launder <laughs> money because that's uh, you know I know some people in the contemporary art space um, in Shanghai and Hong Kong and New York and like basically. 
99% of the contemporary art market is like three Chinese guys selling this stuff to each other. Um, <laughs> what am anyways. I doing? I got to put my art degree to use. Let's uh, let's talk off off camera. Well, Offline. Yeah, 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 for sure. <laughs> I have ideas. So I was um, I was going to say uh, that there are a couple of um, I, I just want to do this for the listeners. There's a, there are a couple of, um, I guess, sites. There's that one um, called Meme, I think, the Meme Coin. And that was the one that went absolutely crazy. Uh, it's the I don't know if you guys know it, but it's the one that's got like the pineapple for a uh, uh, an avatar, and I, I think that they I don't know what the market cap is, but but it went from from something like less than a dollar to eight thousand uh, dollars per coin in a record time, and this is this is an NFT trading platform, I think. Mm-hmm. I don't own it. And so now can... is it is it worth like three cents now? No, it's, it's well. I it's think it did go. Yeah. I think it went up to like eight thousand, and then dropped down to you know dropped down a, a few thousand. There, there was you know been some crashes and some. Uh, it's picked back up. I'm yeah. not really sure what the number is right now. I, I, I haven't I been think following. I jo- it. Yeah, I mean, Josh. Just so I feel comfortable, full disclosure, I, I own like forty two thousand waifu tokens. Yeah, uh, <laughs> which, <laughs> which. I, I'm I'm hoping they make it up to eight thousand. I think it's uh, eight. I bought it maybe fourteen cents. It's at eight cents now. So I don't I don't get it. I think like weebs should be making me rich, and they've totally not shown up. They're all just staying in their parents' basement. Got to hold yeah, on, man. To, just hold on. I'm. I also own. I think around. I'm like waifu poor. I only own like thirty thousand. But it's. Uh, we kind of bought it as a joke, and um, well, sort of as a joke. We thought that the weebs were going to come through for us, but uh, <laughs> it's 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 um, NFT anime girlfriends. Amazing. And, uh, and but what's kind of interesting about this, at least the idea. I don't know if they're gonna if they're gonna see it through. They've they've kind of um, slow rolled it, but the idea here is that you buy the waifu of your choice, right? And then you can battle them. So the NFTs have this functionality where they can, you know, you can use like you can give them you can give them different characteristics, right? Just just like a uh, an RPG character, and then mm-hmm. you can have the two waifus meet up on a, a website designed for this, you know, with the Ethereum contracts for fighting each other, and then whatever their whatever the characteristics, the two characters fight against each other, and then you win some some money paid out in waifu or something like that, you know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So slam, feel, slam, slam dunk. I mean, uh, yeah, it I, I is. don't understand. Yeah. Best business so cool. decision. There, there's one game, uh, <laughs> Axie Infinity, which is very, very similar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're character yeah. little creatures that you can breed together. They, it's, it's legit genetics. It is phenomenal. It's just so, so cool. And I, I had those for quite a while and I sold it all off and, and made some I made no money, IRS, none off that. No, not one no, bit. I mean, and Boating I, accident. Everything that I said, I, everything I said about even owning crypto was just a joke. Yeah, um, tongue in cheek. I think it's all on Minecraft. You know, it's it's uh, a gag. The um, yeah, I mean, I think you know, it is interesting though. Um, there is even in uh, DeFi, decentralized finance, you attract some of these great minds together with the worst actors you can possibly imagine and they're advancing something uh that's where the cool stuff happens yeah 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 yeah. i mean and and i think you know the the bad actors get pushed out eventually um through reputation and i know there's at least one individual i'm never gonna look at any project that they do Again, not like I invest in these things anyways, but the, um, I think that it's, yeah, it's going to evolve into really interesting things. And yeah, is waifu coin ever going to be worth more than eight cents? Probably not. But is this the groundworks of, uh, laying a totally different economy, uh, way of transmitting assets and possessions? Yeah, maybe. Uh, and who knows where it ends up? I think it would be, you know, good. So, how does how did you get into Urbit then? Uh, and where where did how did yeah how did you enter into the community? It was it was through Ravencoin really because a big part of what I was super interested about Ravencoin was on the roadmap of development was a messaging channel. 
that the admin token that is created when you make your NFT for repeatable other assets, kind of like if I had a Mindrefold and Club NFT on Ravencoin, I would have the admin token that allows me to create more children assets of the NFTs I would actually trade on Ravencoin. And when you own that at the admin asset, that allows you to broadcast a message to anybody who is holding the Mindrefold and Group NFT. So it's kind of a one-to-many broadcast radio dynamic. And I thought that was really cool. I was like, oh, man, it's be like a secret club. And then you could just talk to your members and have nobody else between it because it's all on chain. It's all encrypted. I love this. I want this. It wasn't live yet. It was still in, in development. So then I was looking at, okay, NFT messaging, on-chain messaging, peer-to-peer networks. I don't know. And then I think somehow I stumbled upon one of the the intro videos where it's the British lady. Like, imagine if, and it's that animated thing of Megacorps, and it was just kind of that walkthrough video that that Urbit put out. I think in January 2017 or something, but I saw it in 2018. And I was like, oh, my God, a computer that learns and it's and it's a it's just the state of its of all of it's done. Oh, that's super cool. And then when I started looking into it more deeply and I was like, wait a minute. So it's it's all defined. It's all limited. That's cool. Oh, so I get an Ethereum asset and then that's kind of my keys to the kingdom to have this computer that isn't even a physical thing. It just went full-blown meta, and now it lives inside of a com- another computing environment. That's kick-ass. Every piece about it, I just thought was totally interesting. I was like, man, this is this is gnarly. I love this. I, I bought one on OpenSea and then had really weird problems, and it's because I, I bought a planet that was under a dark star. So the Urbit Live dudes were very patient with me in their Telegram. And I'm just floundering around, flailing, and they're and they're trying to explain how to do things. But I was so unfamiliar with computer science that I had to to make them be ultra literal with me. Like, I have no experience in this. So what are you talking about bash command? I've I've Googled it. I, I don't even understand the answers I've I'm getting when I Google this stuff. So they'd have to tell me in your computer environment, in your terminal window, here's where you type it, then hit enter. It's like I couldn't even tell what their placeholder text was for a variable, right? Of okay, this is where you put in your planet name. I had no clue how to differentiate this was command, this was variable within the command, and it should be supplanted with your information. None of that. So that's why I like being in Urbit Help so much, because I received so much help in the early days that I I want to pay pay that forward as much as possible. It's a, it's a small community, um, so I think it's fair to say I've seen you mention breaching with a broken peer a number of times. What, what are you doing with your Urbit that like causes that? I've, I've been around before two breaches now. So I've been on the network more than a year and a half, and it was that I was just poking around too much. I was just having too much fun running commands in Dojo and, oh, I can do this. All right. And then not being patient with it. And I just, I'd break stuff, man. And instead How how many times have you breached? I think I've breached 15 times. Yeah, I I knew that. And I I actually, I think I've breached three times. And I I think of my breach as like a micro Pritchard so I've got like <laughs> nice. three, 
you know, I'm I'm one fifth of a full Pritchard right now. That's on my amazing. Brushes. Yeah, but <laughs> it's an expensive and t- it's expensive now. It right? is. Um, it is a much yeah. different experience. Like back at the time when when Publish first came on the scene, I was I was publishing an article a day or at least a a note of some sort. I had over two hundred notes in a, a notebook that I called the New Era because I would rebuild it every time I breached, which was a real pain in the ass. So I would I would archive the peer, then I would go through the file system, copy those files into the new Minder Folden, then commit home, and then the new Minder Folden would go, oh, hey, I have new notes. But if I hadn't created the new notebook yet, it would just freak out that, wait a minute, where That's did these breach. go? Yeah. All right, now I got a breach again. Now I know I got to create the same notebook with exactly the same name, exactly the same way. Then it'll just magically believe it. It just found some notes from somewhere. Okay, then that would work. But then I would try to write a really long article and then hit enter and then it would just process forever. And then everybody that was subscribed to the notebook they couldn't use publish anymore because it would just never load because the note was too big and it just crashed everybody's publish. So then, all right, well, they're not going to get around to this for a couple weeks. I don't want to wait that long. That's a breach. And it's just all sorts of wacky stuff. I, I was constantly breaking shit because I didn't know any better to not do stuff like that. So I was like, oh, it's a computer. I'm going to use it how I'm going to use it. And I, I found many, many edge cases for for functionality limits on on Urbit. So the Urbit today, man, these whippersnappers, they'll they'll never know what it was like back in the day when when well, the developers must have been pretty thankful uh, for discovering those edge cases. Right. Um, I, I like to think. I was a net positive ad and not a constant source of frustration. <laughs> so I choose to interpret it that way. Yes. You wrote a uh, public letter to your mother, right? About Facebook. And I don't know how much of that was a gimmick or something that you actually communicated there. But um, how do you see social media in general? So unpack those ideas. And how far along do you think uh, Urbit is for that sort of uh, general user. Let's see. As far as gimmick goes, it it's pretty gimmicky. <laughs> that that article. Anytime I explain something for a public audience, the way that I I work through that process is I imagine I'm sitting down at the kitchen table with my mom, trying to explain it. So every every explainer I do, I'm I'm just talking to my mom is really my my process. So I just made it a little more straightforward of if I were going to talk to my mom about Urbit, this is the way that I would explain it. And then that would be a pretty darn good way of talking to somebody who's never heard of Urbit about why Urbit is important. So that's that's kind of the nature of that article and why I wrote it is I I think Urbit is onto it because there are all sorts of projects that are attacking this issue of how busted the internet is from all sorts of angles, but none of them are comprehensive in scope. All of them are lacking in at least one detail. And Urbit is the only project I've found and trying to look actively. Urbit's the only one that is really solving the root issues in a way that fundamentally makes those problems non-existent. So it's it's not just a band-aid, it's not a smoothing over or a patching up. It's uh, I like to explain it. it goes, look, if you want a new social media, you've got to have a new internet. In order to have a new internet, you need new protocols. 
In order to have new protocols, you need new computer systems. In order to have new computer systems, you need new computer language. In order to have a new computer language, boy, it'd be really nice if you had new func like foundational logic to govern that environment. And holy shit, knock fits on a single piece of paper, and that is the in entire logical framework that everything else is built on. That is so impressively elegant and simple that anybody else who goes, well, why in the world would you do it that way? It's easier to do it this way. Well, now you're right back to the beginning of, well, which one's going to create more options down the road? If you do the easier way up front, well, you're accepting in a whole lot of problems that are going to rear their head later. And, oh, look at that. Now you got now you get Facebook. So sure, you could do it the easier way, but the easier way is the busted way that some dude wrote in the 70s that just now is our legacy net. And you want that one weekend's worth of code and bazillions of man hours trying to hobble this thing forward into the future. That's what you want to hitch your wagon to. Okay, great. I would much rather go with a project that has learned from all of those mistakes and then cuts through it like a Gordian knot with a single page functional definition of a, of a computer that can do all this other stuff. Holy crap, that's amazing. To me, that is just stunning insight and ability to make all this other stuff possible. I hope for the day where nobody has to understand any of that to hop on on Urbit and build a kick-ass community that is theirs. So that's that's kind of the other side of why I like being on Urbit and associated with it is being a complete goober when it comes to computer programming and, and computer science. I can I can kind of talk to the outside world in non-computer programming language about why you might be interested in Urbit. So then when people are complaining about this or that, about Facebook or Twitter or whatnot, I can kind of walk them through, okay, here's the problem you're experiencing is, is the symptom, but it is not the cause. The cause goes real deep and we can get into that. But if you just want a place where those symptoms won't show up, there's this uh, magical land of Urbit that uh, come on over to the land of Urbit. It's it's gorgeous over here. So I, I have high hopes and am encouraged by the progress and see nothing but reasons to continue building on it uh, from from every day. I just keep getting more impressed with with what Urbit is and what it can be. How has how Corona Chan affected your touring and stuff like that mm, completely uh as of march all of my in-person stuff um because i have the entertainment side and i also have the corporate training side which is i do mm -hmm. two-day workshops in person for 16 people at a time so companies like bp i've worked with i've worked with united airlines i've worked with state farm so that's that's the corporate side of what I do. So then those two-day workshops are on sales skills. I'll spend two days teaching their team sales techniques and blah, 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 negotiations, all that stuff. So it's not just the performing. It's the training. It's also the, the trade shows that I would help my clients get more business out of trade shows by being the in-booth attractor. I'd be the big screaming blue monkey that attracts attention <laughs> and converts that audience into leads for for them. So there there are many ways that I used my in-person skills to make money. All of those evaporated in March. Every last one of them. So it was it was a, a complete complete destruction of all of my in-person businesses <laughs> in in the course of two weeks the full calendar nothing on it so it was it was fortuitous that for about a year and a half i'd been working as a marketing consultant at one of the country's top seo 
and PPC and social media marketing agencies. So I'd be a consultant mm. with them as kind of a, a commission-based headhunter. If I could close a deal, I get paid. I'm like, awesome, let's let's do that. So in between doing the shows and everything, I could just show up at work, sit in front of the camera and, and close business. Neat. I love it. And then that became the only thing I was getting paid to do aside from mm-hmm. selling my book or or e-courses and that kind of thing. So that that kind of by default became my full-time job. So that was what I would show up to do every day, all day to, to make money. And now I've been doing that for more than a year and a half. So it's been a blessing that that I was that I had that on like my plate already, so that I yeah. I wasn't completely devastated. Have um ha- has anything picked up? I mean, I know um, so Computex is like the CES of Asia mm-hmm. in Taipei, uh, and they they bailed last year, and they're trying to do some I don't know they called it AI. AI assisted conference. I think it sounds terrible. Yeah. Um, but you know, so I think the, those kind of um, trade shows are probably going to be off maybe for like even another year. But were there any signs of life in that kind of travel circuit market for you? Not at all. No. The yeah. the thing the thing that was cool is that my college agent, who was booking my in person college shows, because like what happened was. Everything evaporates. All my magician friends, all my performer friends lose all of their work in business. And and then their solution was to show and share their in-person shows videotaped. And that was their strategy of getting their show out there. But that's not presenting them in the best way possible. Mm-hmm. And it can it can backfire, right? Because if it's not a great video, you're like, boy, this kind of sucks. But if you're yeah. in if you're in the audience, you're like, this is the most amazing thing I've ever seen in my life. This is what? Right. So they, they weren't really helping themselves. And then that created the belief in me of, well, I'm just not going to do this. I'm not going to do the online thing at all. And I I was doubling down on that hard because every every time I saw somebody doing an online thing, it was awful. <laughs> and I was just like, mm-hmm. yeah, that's another data point in the let's not do this column. Until I realized, boy, Jonathan, you're you're being very uh, problem oriented and not solutions oriented. If you were going to do this online, what would you do? Like, oh, OK, well, you know what? I could. I could kind of do a video call that that limits a lot of what I can do, but it actually kind of opens up some cool avenues because close up experience where you're sitting right here in front of me is phenomenal. When you're seeing me in a 3000 person auditorium or I'm talking to a 2000 person conference room, well, everybody in the room's going, ah, there's something I can't see because it's so far away. But but I know if I were right there, I'd be I could Mm -hmm. see it. But if you're sitting right next to me at a coffee shop and I can do what I do, there's no room for doubt. You're just like, okay, he's he's a guru. I got to join his cult. So now with the camera right in front of me, everybody on Zoom has a front row seat to me. So there, there are just no bad seats on Zoom. So I'll say, oh, that's kick ass. So how, how the hell am I going to learn how to do Zoom shows Oh, uh, who who has this figured out already? Ah, oh, gamers have this figured out on Twitch. Live streamers, they've got all the bells and whistles. So then I did a deep dive into Twitch, and oh, OBS is how they're doing all their kick-ass transitions and scenes and overlays and that kind of thing. Okay, so now I got to learn OBS. Oh my God, my my laptop can't handle this, so I'm gonna need to buy a a big-ass gaming rig. So I. I bought all the components and the people in my Urbit group straight up just told me what components to get. I would go look at builds and then go, what about this one? They're like, well, you don't want this for that reason. You don't want this one for this reason, but you want to keep that thing because it'll serve you well for the shows you're doing. So my group actually handpicked my computer for me. And I was like, I don't want the cheapest. I don't want the best. 
I just want something that I can depend on because I'm going to be doing corporate level engagements. I can't have this shit the bed in the middle of a, a presentation. So it's got to be a workhorse. Don't worry about price. So they, they kind of built it out. So then I streamed four and a half hours of me building my computer to take over the streaming. So it was piecemeal. I, I would learn one new thing, incorporate that. And my college agent started booking those virtual shows. So the first one I did was with a, a webcam connected to my laptop and I'm sitting on my couch at home and I'm using my coffee table. So that was kind of early in the days where I was like, oh, we're all on lockdown. Come hang out with the mind reader at home. Welcome to my living room. Let's let's have a party. And the production value was awful. So then over the course of those months, my agent started booking more and more of those college shows to fund buying all this very expensive equipment to now I've got a professional setup, a professional studio in in the, the second bedroom of the apartment. So now I can really do some high quality presentations and videos and, and all that jazz. So I... I can pivot real quick. In a couple months, I can just have a completely new market to to attack. The challenge is on the HR departments, the marketing departments, the sales departments who are in corporations that don't pivot that quickly, who aren't Mm -hmm. that quick to understand, oh, we could do a virtual conference in a way that's not going to be hot garbage. And... (laughs) Not even because they're not even on that train yet. So they aren't yet to the point of understanding that they can't pull it off, but it could be pulled off by somebody who knows what they're doing. Then going, well, can we go find somebody who knows what they're doing to help us in this environment that we're not even aware of yet? So that's like I'm three, four iterations ahead of them, desperately trying to pull them forward to know that they, one, need somebody like me to excel, two, in the digital Zoom environment for corporate functions. So I'm ready. I am in the desert screaming my head off that, hey, everybody, I've spent a lifetime in front of cameras communicating to audiences you can't see for all sorts of messaging. My first corporate gig was when I was 13 years old. I'm now 37 years old, almost 38. So that's how long I've been doing corporate messaging delivery by way of performing. And the Zoom environment is just yet another place to do it. So the fundamentals are still the same. The principles are still the same. It's just a, a different kind of stadium. That's that's really all it is. And the sooner that these companies and departments wise up to the fact that they can win in a Zoom world and that there are people like me who can help them win, the sooner I'll be back on track and I'll be I'll be stoked about that. How can we uh, help you shill? Ooh, uh, <laughs> I guess basically just sending people to jonathanpritchard.me for the legacy net stuff. That's that's my one hub where I try to to put everything that I do. <laughs> All my I've got one fire, which is I know I'm alive once for a limited amount of time and I sure as hell can't afford to coast. All the irons are in that one fire. So that's that's where I put everything for the corporate, personal, uh, private stuff for coaching, training, you name it. So that's that's it. On Legacy Net Social, I'm most active on Twitter. I see that as a broadcast medium where I come to shout my ideas as, as loudly as possible so that the right people find me and then get them in my cult on Urbit, which is uh, Mindrefolden slash Purgatory is the front doorstep. So that's my public group where people can request invite 
Uh, no comets allowed. Thank you for your interest. Come back when you're a planet. Um, but but when you request entry, you get into the closed group where basically anybody in there gets full access to the members-only stuff that the Legacy Net people have to pay for, like uh, memberships to the Mind Reader, Mind Reader University where you can find the full conversations and the videos, the videos of the conversations and stuff. Uh, so the people in my Urbit group, I'm willing to share anything and everything in there that the other folks have to pay dearly for. That's awesome. Yeah. So buy yourself a planet, people. Go buy an Urbit planet. Yesterday. And then come find me. Thank you for listening. Please visit us at www.thestack.link or find us on Twitter at thestack.link, all one word. And please remember to like and subscribe on SoundCloud and iTunes. I'm Josh, and with Andy, we are The Stack.